Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. All right, well, let's uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We left off here right around verse uh, 26. Thank you. Um, just one thing about verses 18 through 25 that we talked about significantly last week, and that is how God's, um, how you want to put it, uh, the way things work in the kingdom is not the way things work in the world, right? The way things work in the world is you get ahead by, you know, looking out for number one. Um, the idea is not to serve but to be served. Um, it's not to give but to get. Um, whereas in the kingdom, it's the total opposite, right? Um, in the kingdom, you get ahead by giving up. You win by losing. You save your life by giving up your life. Um, it's the exact opposite. And uh, it's especially true when it comes to salvation, right? I mean, God did not make a salvation that required a certain level of intelligence or a certain amount of financial resources or a certain great feats or anything like that. God um, provided a salvation that's available to anyone who's, who believes. Um, and I think one of the great stories on that, of course, is Naaman, right? Where he got Naaman, the leper, who comes down and wants to be healed. And he uh, shows up at the home of Elijah. And, uh, of course, uh, he says, uh, wants Elijah to come out and heal him. And Elijah says, um, tells Gehazi, his servant, I'll go out and tell him to go dip in the River Jordan seven times. Didn't even, you know, and that, that's pretty bad when, you know, when you're a big dignitary like that. And you make a long trip down to see somebody, and they send their servant out. Especially when you're second in command, basically. I mean, here's the captain, the king's guard. Here's, uh, you know, the, the head of the, of the Syrian army. And if you remember anything about Syria and Israel, you know, they didn't get along all that well. They fought a lot. Um, and uh, this was not a, you know, probably a, a, a socially acceptable thing for Elijah to do. But what was Elijah trying to get through to Naaman, you think? I think he's trying to get through to him. You got to humble yourself, right? Go dip seven times in the River Jordan. And he goes away mad, right? He's angry. He's upset. And he says, you know, we got better rivers than Jordan where I come from. You know, I didn't have to come all the way down here and dip in this muddy creek. And what did the servants finally tell him? Yeah. If he asked you to do something great or, or, or pay a large sum of money, or you'd have done it in, in, in no time at all. He asked you to do something simple like dip in the river. And you don't want to do it. So what did Naaman do? Of course, he went down, dipped in the river, came up, and was perfectly whole. And all it was was, are you going to humble yourself? And that, that's, that's, that's the way to the cross, right? The way to the cross is you've got to humble yourself. You don't go to... God and say, I want Jesus and. You know, I want Jesus and this, and I want Jesus and that. Or you don't come to God on your terms. You come to God on God's terms. His terms are laid out very clearly. You humble yourself. You give up. It's all of all that you want. It's all of you for all of him. You don't bargain with God. You come to God on his terms. And that's foolishness to the world, right? That's crazy. That's nutty. It's, 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 it's insane to go out there and tell the world 
you know, from their perspective, the way to have peace with God is to ask him to forgive you, right? That's too easy, isn't it? It's got, it's got to be more difficult than that. And when you look at the religions that men have come up with, whatever it is, whether it's Jehovah Witness or Mormonism or Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, it's a lot of work in those places, those things, isn't it? A lot of work. And then you're never sure you're going to make it or not. And what does God say? The preaching of the cross is a foolishness to those who are perishing. So here's a question. If it's foolishness to those who are perishing, how did anybody ever believe? The Holy Spirit, right? Why did you believe? I made it possible. It's the Holy Spirit. It's not your great intellect. We really got to get away from that, thinking that somehow we figured this thing out. It's not our great intellect. It's not our abilities. It's God's grace. He opened our eyes. He gave us light. He helped us to understand. He took the blinders off. And we were able to see it was a work of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way a person can believe. And what that tells us is that since the preaching of the cross, those are perished foolishness, what should we not try to do when we preach it? Complicate it or make it not foolish, right? We can't change it. We can't alter it. That's, that's one of the dangers we have in modern evangelical evangelism is, um, you know, got these people say, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Will they? Not necessarily. <laughs> now, eternally they will, right? I mean, from the eternal grand scheme of things, yes. But you know what? You might come to Jesus and lose your job. You relate to that. <laughs> yeah. You might come to Jesus and your husband or wife might leave you. You might come to Christ and you may lose it all. That's that's not what Christianity is. It's about a relationship with God. And, and when God calls us, we respond. And... What is foolishness to the world is the wisdom of God. And it's sort of like, you know, thinking about the dumbest thing God ever did, if you can say God does anything dumb, but the dumbest thing he would have ever done is far beyond the wisest anything we would ever do. There's, there's, no, there, there's no gap. And, and one of the difficulties that we want to do sometimes, or, or people want to do, is they want to bring God down a little bit. They want to bring themselves up a little bit and sort of close the gap between them and God. And you can't do that. The gulf is infinite. The preaching of the cross is to those who have perished foolishness. And to the Jews, he, he picks out the Jews and the Gentiles here. What are the Gentiles, what are, what are they after? What are the, the nations after? Well, they're after wisdom, right? They're after something complicated. You know, they're after intellectual stuff. Um, hi, Moody class. Yeah. Come on in. They're after uh, the Greeks are after wisdom. They and remember Mars Hill. You know, Paul goes and preaches at Mars Hill, and all they do is sit around all day long and uh, talk about the latest, greatest fad. Sort of like daytime TV, right? What's the latest, greatest, newest, and most interesting thing? And when Paul shows up, they want his spin on things. And Christ is to the Jews what? A stumbling block. In what way? 
You got to be kidding. Our, we nailed our Messiah on a cross? No way. He's not it. We're not going to believe in him. They refuse to believe. It's a stumbling block. And in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than man. Again, the dumbest thing God ever did, if you can say he did anything dumb, which we can't, is far beyond the wisest thing we could ever do. And how do you know that? Well, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble are called. How does he do that? He says, well, look around and who do you see in your midst? You see any, you see any really wise people? You see any great people, necessarily? You see any mighty people? What's the rhetorical answer? No. I mean, if you look around and see the riffraff that's in the church, you understand that it's not the great, the wise, the mighty, the noble. What has God done? He's chosen the foolish things of the world to put the shame of the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and those things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. What's the big picture there? What's he saying? God gets it all, right? Stop and think about it. If he had to do something great to get to heaven, what would we be doing for the rest of eternity? Well, how'd you get here? What great thing did you do? Oh, I did greater than that. I did, I did, you know, I did more than that. We'd be sitting around all of eternity comparing one another and, and trying to somehow, um, you know, take glory in the fact that we're there because of what we did. What did you do to get saved? What did you contribute to your salvation? You didn't contribute nothing, huh? No. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how does God determine That's based on our faithfulness to once we're saved. You don't, you don't do anything to. Here, here's the point for what you contribute to your salvation is a mess, don't you? What's your contribution? Your sin. That's your contribution. You come to God with a mess that you can't fix. You can't do anything about. That, that's your That's what C.H. Spurgeon said. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of the last century, said, what you contribute to your salvation is sin. That, that's your contribution. God does everything else. And why does God do that? So no flesh can stand up and say, I did this. I did that. I deserve it. And you got to understand, how did, the, how did the Jews of that day, how did they view themselves? They spent all day long justifying themselves before men, right? They had this little thing on praying, and they just made sure that, you know, certain times of the day they were supposed to pray. And they just made sure to arrange their schedule so they'd be in the middle of the street when that time hit. And all the traffic would stop while they're out in the middle of the street praying so that people could see their piosity. 
When it came time to give the offering, what did they do? Got some play to blow a trumpet. Here comes the guy dropping his coins into the offering. See how godly he is. And Christ said they have their reward in full. The term there means to be paid in full. You, it's like, you know, you take your receipt down and they get that little stamp. Paid in full. That's God is saying, if you do your good deeds to be seen of men, you've got full payment. I owe you nothing. You've got what you wanted. Rather, let your left hand not know what the right hand is doing. Do it in secret. But God, God has created, God, is, God has designed this, this salvation, and God has designed the path back to him such that no flesh can stand up and say, I did this. I deserve it because of what I did. Because none of us deserve anything. No flesh could boast in his sight. And by the way, Paul uses this argument very masterfully in, in Romans 3 to show that salvation is not by the law. Because if salvation were by the law, right, then what could we claim? We did it. I kept the law. That's why I'm in. I, I, I followed the law. That's why I'm here. And that's what he says in Romans 4, right? David was justified by what? By believing God. How is Abraham justified? He believed God, not by works, not by circumstance, circumcision. In fact, Abraham, it says, he was justified long before he was ever circumcised. And he was justified long before the law was even given, right? The law came 400 years after Abraham, so he wasn't he wasn't justified because he kept the law. He wasn't justified because he got circumcised. He was justified, why? Because he believed what God told him. Nothing more. And it's that way for all of us. How are you justified? You believe what God has said. That's right. And that's, that's the argument Paul is making throughout Romans. He's saying you got two ways to God. There's two ways to God. And there's two righteousnesses you can have. Two ways to God. Way number one, you got to keep all the law, never break it in one spot, which no one can do, right? The second way back is by belief, by faith. And if it's by faith, it can't be by works. If it's by works, it can't be by faith. You can't have it both ways. It's not both. It's an either-or situation. And Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, I want to be found before him not having my own righteousness, which is by the law, right? What righteousness could you have apart from God? By the law, that's it. And we fall way short of that, don't we? We got a legal expert in the room, I think. Yeah. And you know what? If, if, I, if, if, I, if I went out here and I committed a crime, I can't stand before the judge and say, you know, you know, for... For 47 years, you know, I've kept every law. You know, I haven't broken a law. You know, okay, so I killed this guy. But, you know, I should be off on that one because 47 years I did the right thing. We think that ludicrous, right? Ridiculous. Idiotic. And yet that's how we do. You know, we stand before God and say, well, you know, okay, I committed this sin. But, you know, I've been good over here. I kept the law over here. Well, you know what? That doesn't matter because what should you be doing? That's what you should do, right? And the fact that you break the law doesn't mean that you can take with all the brownie points of all the things you've done right and apply them and somehow erase that infraction. It, it doesn't work that way. The Bible says that God has created 
and designed salvation such that the requirement is faith. And that is available to anyone. And it does not depend on your intellect, your insight, your wisdom, your might or your strength. And the way you know that, because you look around and who are the Christians? Well, not the wise and not the mighty and certainly not the noble. It's the base. It's the common people. He says that's the way. Why? Because he doesn't want in 29. No flesh should glory in his sight. God does not want heaven full of a bunch of people who pat themselves on the back for how bright they were to get there. What kind of heaven is that? When we get to heaven, we look around and someone says, why are you here? It's the grace of God alone. That's it. It's not anything I did. My contribution was a mess. Sin. And even the faith that God grants me is a gift of his, right? Why do you believe? Is, is that you that, that came up with that faith? You decided one day that Christianity was better than some other thing and you just picked it? For by grace are you saved through faith, right? And that not of yourselves. But that refers back to what? Faith. God granted you the faith to believe. Remember Simon Magus, Acts 8? What did Paul tell him? Repent and, and perhaps God would grant you what? Repentance. It's all of God. And God, Paul's saying he's brought him that way. He, and he's talking to a Greek culture here, right? He's talking to a church that is steeped in Greek culture and it's in the metropolitan city of the time, all right, where you had wealth, you had people of extreme wealth. And he says, who are the ones that are redeemed? It's not the wealthy ones. It's not the mighty. It's not the noble. It's the base. It's the poor. It's the slaves. That no flesh of glory. But of him you are in Christ who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You are in Christ Jesus. And what comes from him? Wisdom from God. Wisdom from God. Are you like me when you when you watch TV you just roll your eyes and ask yourself how people could be so stupid? Do you do that? I do that all the time. I look at it and say, how could somebody be so stupid? And then I have to catch myself and say, you know why they're stupid? They don't have Christ. What do you expect? Right? I mean, what do you expect? When Jerry Springer gets up and spouts nonsense, what do you expect, right? You should expect it. You should, in fact, you should be surprised if he says something sane. Why? Because wisdom comes from where? It comes from God. It doesn't come from us. But there was a residual effect, of, uh, a residual carryover effect of Christianity. It's now gone. I mean, you look at you, you know, I, I sit there and I watch, t, you know, I, I channel surf, you know, with that little clicker. It's a wonderful little doodad, you know, and uh, they're junk on TV that 35 years ago you'd been run out of town. 
They, I mean, you're, you're, the television station would have been attacked and burned to the ground had they broadcast that stuff. And now that's some of the more tamer stuff that you see on there. When you talk about a mental cesspool or a moral cesspool, you, TV. And why is that? Well, what do you expect from the world? What do you expect? If you don't have Christ, how you know? And that's the thing we got to understand. You know, sometimes even as Christians, we like to pat ourselves on the back, and say, "Well, you know, I don't do that awful stuff over there," you know. And it's like, well, you know, you you fit right in with the Pharisees. Who, what do they do? Well, they pat themselves on the back, and say, "Well, you know, I don't do that stuff over there." And we need to understand that that the reason we don't is because God has granted us the faith and the understanding and the wisdom to not do that. It's not because you're a nice person. It's because God has transformed you. God has given you the ability to see and the ability to understand and the ability to have a moral sense and moral reason. And where does that come from? That comes from God. It doesn't come from you. It comes from reading his word, which tells you what wisdom is. And that's not what the world, that's not the definition of the world's wisdom. It's not the, you know, you, you look at the whole, uh, you know, teenage pregnancy problem. What's the world's solution? Condoms in school and education, right? And then you say somebody, somebody comes along and says, you know, we, we should teach abstinence. Oh, we got a religious nut here. Let's get rid of them. And all it is, I mean, that would be common sense, right? I mean, 40 years ago, that was common sense. My grandfather and grandmother were raised as non-believers. They became believers shortly before their death. My grandfather did. Um, they, they lived their entire, most of their life as an unbeliever. And they had decency because they came from a, a society where there were, were decent, there's some decency built in. We don't have that anymore. So how does the world solve teenage pregnancy? Well, we'll give them condoms and give them some education. How does it solve drunkenness? Education. Everything, you know, notice how everything is education. The idea of just not doing it is not something they consider. And you ask someone, well, why don't you teach absence? Well, we know all the kids are going to do it anyway, so it's, why do we waste our breath? Well, what does the Bible say? You know, when you do it God's way, things work out, right? When you do it the world's way, it doesn't work out. And yet, we have Christians that are buying into the world's thinking folks God's given us wisdom he's given us his Holy Spirit that opens our eyes and gives us understanding and insight and helps us to know what we should do we just got to do it and not only does he his wisdom but his righteousness where do you get your righteousness from you no what is righteousness righteousness is is doing right things and you understand something is right because God does it. The tax man here. Oh. Hold your walk. Sorry about the interruption. I got your How you doing? Good. I did good. Yeah. Good. I had a emergency office location. See, if you get Max, you wouldn't have that problem. But anyways. Um, yeah. Right, John? That's right. Absolutely. See, I got one convert. Wow, that was a new Yeah. But, um... 
understand something something is righteous because that's what God does. God doesn't do it because it's righteous. Right? God is the definition of what is right. And how are we righteous? Well, we do the things that God does. Well, how do you know what God does? The Holy Spirit gives you understanding and insight. It comes from the Word of God. And in fact, the only way we can have any level of righteousness is how? Through the Spirit. Because you can't be righteous on your own. And not only is he our righteousness here, but it says, it says our sanctification and redemption. What's this saying? What's sanctification? What's that mean? To be set apart, to be made holy. And in our lives, is that a process or an event? It's a process. Now, there's an event of sanctification when you're set apart, but then there's a continuing process of sanctification as throughout our spiritual life, we are set apart to God, right? That's a process. How does that process energize? By you? How many of you just got up this morning and decided not to sin today and made it all the way through and not sin? I made it as far as the uh, as far as hitting my foot on the floor before I had one, right? I mean, we can't decide in and of our own that we're going to be holy. God does it. The Holy Spirit does it as a work in our heart. It is he who energizes us and gives us this ability. Where does it come from? Christ. And out of that, he's our redemption. What's that? Our, he has bought us back. He has paid the price. He set us free. Now, where, where, does, where does, and this is what, what Paul's trying to get at here, where does your wisdom and your righteousness and your sanctification and your redemption, where, where's the origin of that? It's Christ. It's God. It's not you. Because if it was you, you could stand up and say, I'm righteous because, you know, look at all the things I've done. And I'm wise because, you know, I'm smart. And I read the Bible and I do what it says and I'm wise because of that. We, we can't take credit for it. The credit belongs to God. That, is, that as it is written, he who glories, let him do what? Glory in the Lord, not man. God does not want anybody glorying in his sight that they did it, that they deserve it, that God owes them. What does God owe you? He owes you hell, doesn't he? To be quite honest, if God was perfectly just, where would all of us go? Yeah. It's his grace that allows us to have a relationship with him. And he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. When we get to heaven, he gets all of the credit for this. We don't get anything. We're there because of his grace and his grace alone. And Christ and God does not want us glorying. And notice what Paul says in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. Now, um, on the intellectual scale, where was Paul? He was the top notch, right? Who, he studied under Gamaliel, right? The, one of the number one Pharisees of the day. I mean, an expert in the law. I mean, Paul was 
brilliant beyond our comprehension of brilliant. You realize that most some of these old scribes could quote the entire Old Testament in Hebrew? Did you know that? I mean, they knew it that well, that they could quote it. Paul was no slouch. And yet when he showed up, what did he decide? What did he decide not to do? Not to let them know it, right? Not to try to use some smooth speech or some... Now, I'll tell you what, that's awfully hard for a human being, right? In fact, one of the hardest things for a human being to do is keep their mouth shut when they know they're right. It's kind of tough to do that, right? I'm really glad my wife is deaf, so when I yell at the TV, she doesn't hear me. You know, when I, these, you know. But the hardest thing for us to do is keep keep quiet when we're right, because we always want to spout off, don't we? We always want to speak. And what did Paul say? When I came among you, I did not come with excellency of words. I didn't come you know, throwing myself around as some great, wonderful expert. I didn't come with all my credentials. In fact, I came determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. Why did he do that? Why did Paul do it that way? Pretty arrogant, proud. If Paul had come in, throwing a bunch around a bunch of big fancy words, and with all of his erudite speech and all of his flowery and wise speech, and people believed, who got the who would get the glory? And who should get the glory? Christ. Now, what that tells you is that tells you that as believers. It's not your wisdom and your speech and your persuasive abilities that reach anybody with the gospel, right? It's Christ. It's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that brings light. You don't. In fact, what you need to do is get out of the way because the, the greater you think you are and the more able you think you are and the more um, skilled you think you are, the harder you are going to fall, isn't it? Pride goes before a fall and the haughty spirit before destruction. He was, but what, what he did is when he, he said, when I came to preach Christ to you, I decided not to do it with, um, you know, the persuasive abilities of my speech. You know, I did not, I did not try to talk them into it. He came, in fact, he, he purposely came in weakness and fear and trembling because he wanted to make sure that when he spoke and people believed it was not because of him. <clears throat> See, that, that's the thing. It was not because of his great persuasive abilities. Rather, because God called them. You know, I, I've experienced this. You know, sometimes I, you know, I taught a class and I thought it was great. I thought, Man, I did a really good job, and everybody's falling asleep, and they say, you know, you, you're a little bit off today. You feel pretty sick. You know, you're all right. And I remember another time I taught, and I, I struggled, and I 
couldn't speak very well. And I just, man, you know, they're, they're going to we'll get run out of a rail. They're not coming back next week. And everybody said, wow, that was the best one you ever what, what happened? And all that does, I think God does it every once in a while just to get you to understand, you know, it's really not you. You haven't even preaching? You know, you, you get down, you think you preached a great sermon, and everybody says, you know, you've been off today, Pastor. You know, you're sick, you're all right. And then you get down off the pulpit, and you think, you know, you blew it big time, and you're probably going to get fired, and the board's going to be called, and they're going to run you out of the church, and, you know, half the church are on their knees in response. You know, it. God does that just to make sure that we understand it's really not you, it's really not me. And Paul says, I made, a, I made a determination when I showed up that I was not going to throw my intellectual abilities around and show off and try to talk them into it. Rather, I purposely set them aside and came preaching only Christ and Him crucified, which is to the intellectual Greek, what? Moros. Foolishness. Stupid. And my speech and my preaching, verse 4, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You ever hear a preacher who, who entertains you, but when you're done, you don't know what he said? You ever been there? I've, I've been to some of those services. You know, He gets done, he said, well, you know, I had a good time, we had a lot of laughs, and there's some good jokes in there, but what was he preaching on again? I don't know. I forget. And then sometimes you get just some simple person in there who is not very, very good with the words and not very good with the English and stumbles and bumbles a little bit, but somehow it's got the power of God there. Now Paul is saying, you know, when I showed up to you guys, I did not show up with persuasive words of man's wisdom. It, and, and we need to understand when we present the gospel, when we teach, when we, we preach, or whatever it is we find ourselves in, it's not us. It's really not. And the more you get it, the more you think it's you, the, 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 it shuts off the power of God. It's just it's like turning it off. And Paul says, but I came in demonstration of the Spirit and a power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, I came humble, letting God do the work. That way I knew that it was God, right? There's a real good example of this. I, you know, I want to, when I get to heaven, I want to go to the video archives and see some things. If they have such a thing as a video archives up there. But I sort of want to see uh, Elijah on Carmel, don't you? Remember? He says, you know, let's settle this like men. You you go and we'll, we'll, we'll make a couple of altars here and you pray to your God and whichever God answers by fire, we'll, we'll, we'll follow him. And so what did the priests of Baal do? Well, they made their altar and put the animal on it and spent all day long jumping up and down. Finally, they started cutting themselves. And old Elijah was there saying, hey, you talk louder. You may be on vacation. Maybe you went away somewhere, you know. Maybe he's sleeping. Then it came Elijah's turn. What did he do? He built a moat around it. Not only did he build a moat around it, what did he do? 
He poured water. He soaked it. He drenched it with water. Now, why did P do that? <laughs> why did he do that? When, when the fire came and, and not only was the, the bowl or whatever, the animal burned up, the wood and the altar and the water, no one could sit there and say, you know, I think he hit a match underneath that. You know, that's what, that's how it did it. You know, he, he tricked us. Or he had a little fire under there. We didn't see it. And that's Paul, Elijah, you know, and I think God just, I think that just tickles God pink. If you, if you can think of God getting, God wants to be put on display that when it happens, there's no mistaking about who it came from. There's no question that it was from God. There's no no doubt about it. <laughs> and that's what happened with Elijah. When, Eli when that fire fell, there was no doubt in anybody's mind where it came from. Because Paul made it difficult for God. Now, if I was there, what would I have done? You know, this wood isn't dry enough. Let's get a little drier. We want to help God out, don't we? Don't we like to help God out? Give him a hand? Make it a little bit easier for him, you know? He might need a little bit of help. Does God need our help? God doesn't need our help. Yep. And in fact, every time, and it's interesting, in the Bible, any time someone gave God a hand, what happened? It got messed up. It's like telling Michelangelo, oh, scoot over and let me finish the, the eye here on uh, the Sistine Chapel guy. Or, you know, I, I, you know, Leonardo, that smile just isn't right. Let me, let me, let me paint her smile in just a little bit better here, you know. This is somebody who does stick figures, you know, for drawings, you know. God doesn't need your help. When Abraham tried to help God out, what happened? The Arabs. Yeah, that's, that's where they came from, right? Abraham decided to give God a hand. You know, God's having a hard time pulling this thing off. Maybe, maybe we'll give him a little hand. We'll give him a little assistance here. And it messed it all up. God doesn't need our assistance. He needs our belief. He needs our faith. And, and God honors that. And Paul is saying here, when I showed up, I made sure that my speech could not be construed as the reason you believed. It had to be the power of God. There'd be no question. Because the last thing I want is them to be my converts. Right? See, that's one of, just as an aside, that's one of the things that gives me the little bit of the jitters about a lot of our modern evangelistic approaches. Because what, what's the idea of a modern evangelistic approach? Seeker sensitive, sneak up on them, and maybe they'll become a Christian and not even know what hit them. You know, and, um, you know, the, the, the entire Billy Graham crusade is built around the idea of all the counselors and all their spouses are supposed to come forward at the invitation. Why? To get, to get the flow going, to get people going, you know. They're told that. I'm not making that up. That's, that's what they're told to do. Were you there at one of them? Your girlfriend, you know, and they're told, hey, you know, when the invitation is given, I want all the counselors to get up and come forward. You know, maybe you'll suck some sinners along with you. Yeah. I'm giving her. All right. And why is that? What's the thought there? Do they really believe on the power of God to change somebody's life? Do they really believe in that? 
No. They might, you know, now they might say, well, of course we do, but practically, how that, how's that working? Give God a hand. You know, if we don't prime the pump and maybe drag them forward, they're not going to believe. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they, they think 50 verses of just as I am or whatever it is. And, and the whole idea there is to manipulate people. What is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, I purposely did not manipulate anybody. Right? How did Christ how did Christ preach? He manipulate people? He tells some tear jerking story and try to get them to, you know, believe and tell the now look, you know, and I'm done, I want you all to come forward, you know, maybe drag some is that how it worked? When the rich young ruler wanted in, what did he say? Go sell everything. Come follow me. I'll follow you, Jesus. Let me bury my father. I'll let the dead bury the dead. Um, I'll follow you, but let me get my inheritance first. No, if you look, put your hand in the palm, look back. I don't want you. He raised them. And you know what? And, and the problem with a lot of crusades is, you know, we had 4,500 people come forward. How many people were really saved? Two, three. Now you're saying, oh, you're making that up. No, they had a Louis Palau concert, or not concert, um, crusade down in, I think it was Venezuela. What's the big city? Caracas? Is that the big city in Venezuela? Caracas? Um, I think it was Caracas, Venezuela, or something like that. Big crusade, you know, and uh, touting how many people came forward and responded to the gospel. And they followed up a year later and found out how many of those people that came forward were actually in churches, and they only found one in the church. Caught up in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, you got a bunch of guys sitting there, you know. And, and when it's all said and done, you, know, you go back, and two weeks later, they're back to their old ways, right? Because it's just a big pep rally. It's the big... Look, you know, and, and what Paul is saying here, and, and you need to think about this. What Paul is saying is that I purposely, he, Paul, purposely said, I'm not going to come in with a bunch of smooth words and smooth talking, persuasive speech, and try to get a bunch of people in who are not really committed. Because then they're my converts, they're not God's converts, and that weakens the church, right? That weakens the church. Paul's saying, I, I'm not going to, I don't want them to say they became a Christian because I talked them into it. Because after all, it's the power of God that saves, isn't it? Now, if you have the mentality that says somehow you prime the pump and you pull them in, whose responsibility is it for their salvation? Who does that? You or God? You, right? If you fall into that, it's, I mean, that's, that's Finney. Oberlin College founder he was a lawyer don't hold that against him he was a lawyer and his his thesis was his his theology was that he could persuade anybody to become a Christian given enough time he he could persuade anybody it was up to the preacher to bring him forward bring him in and um, if you didn't it's your fault obviously you're not skilled enough and what's Paul saying here? It doesn't depend on the skill of you. 
Um, does the skill of the farmer cause the seed to grow? No. It doesn't, does it? You don't make the seed germinate, do you? You don't make it. I mean, you know, you got to water and things. I'm, I understand that. But for the most, you know, you, you could throw seed on a bare ground. It'll grow, right? Except me. Nothing I, nothing I plant grows. I'm still having trouble grasping programs. Okay. Over 60 years of faithful service, well, millions and millions of people who came forward, and it just—it's hard for me to believe that very few, very few became faithful. When when you when you would look, I I think you would be surprised if you actually counted. And please understand, I'm not just ripping on Billy for the sake of ripping on Billy Graham. All right, I wouldn't do that. It's not about him personally. It's about the theology of somehow something beyond behind that. There's a mentality sometimes in these crusades that we got to have a crusade in order to get people saved because if we don't have it, they won't become Christians. But, All right, that that that's 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 an undercurrent thinking yeah, okay. that is there. It is. It's there. And, and when you and when you have people buy into that thinking, then then the idea of manipulation, light manipulation, and things like that that becomes a tool, all right, to get people to come forward. Now, does that mean that there are people that are truly born again in his crusades? Absolutely there were. You said you were. I have some cousins that were. Are there what you were? I, I have a cousin that came to know the Lord in the Billy Graham crusade many years ago. So, of course, of course, and here's the point. If you're elect, you're going to get in no matter if Billy Graham preaches or anybody, right? That's not the point. The point is there's the mentality. There's a, there's, there's a, a subtle mentality in the evangelistic thinking which leaks into the seeker-sensitive movement, which somehow says that I have to manipulate, I have to, to, to you know, um, I wanna, how do you want to put it? I have to alter the message, be nice, because if I don't, somehow people aren't going to be saved. And it's somehow it's my fault that they don't come to know the Lord. But at some point, right. And at some point, though, I believe I believe one of the dangers, one of the great dangers of Billy, there's two great dangers. One is the subtle thinking on the part of many of the counselors that go there and are taught that 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 they need to prime the pump and you know they, they can manipulate people into the game. That's one danger. The second great danger, personally, that I believe that, that he has is a is a um, want to put a, a I'm trying to think of the best words to put it in an, an ecumenical view of things such that um, whether you're you're a Catholic or whether you're a, a Lutheran or a Methodist. Or a Mormon, or whatever you are, we're all one big happy family if we believe in Jesus. It is common in promise keepers, but it is in there. For example, you know, Billy Graham would say, if a Catholic comes to know the Lord, then that in his crusade comes forward, then you want to put them in a Catholic church. Now that's a lot of help, isn't it? Right. 
Do good Catholics go to heaven? Good Catholics don't go to heaven. Why? Because good Catholics believe what? Works. Bad Catholics go to heaven. <laughs> All right. Yeah, bad Catholics go to heaven. Good Catholics don't. Yeah, but 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 one of the difficulties, and this is borne out by by people who've taken the counseling that is that you're taught in Billy Graham Crusade. You know, if you got whatever denomination they are, you want to send them back to that church. Well, you got to be careful. You know, Meth you know Methodists. There are some really good Methodist church, but by and large, most of them aren't. Ask Steve about what the Oberlin Methodist Church is that the one you went to? All right. Yeah, you. What'd you do? Go and talk to the pastors. Oh, you don't believe the Bible, do you? You really believe that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that. You know. Now that that's not every Methodist church. No, I'm not here picking on denominations. So I'm sorry if it comes across that way. All right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't think I'm singling anyone out or any denomination. I'm saying that, that there is the truth, all right? And in, in the crusade, I have, I have real trouble, you know, while you're, oh, we'll send you back to the Catholic Church and the Catholic Mass. If you knew anything about Catholicism, that's about as demonic a system as there is. If you really understood what they believe. One of his reasoning is if they, if they get saved and they go back, and they could do the one they could. We don't know his reason. So, you, so, well, and I question that. Right. I question that. That's like, that's well, like Christ. That that's that's like God saying, you know, I'm going to save you. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to clean you. And I'm going to let you go back and play in the mud again. <laughs> Doesn't matter. No, not necessarily. But there's people that are charismatic Catholics. There's people that are born again. I'm not. I'm not disputing that. And they went back. They could be the ones that pull their family out. I was an ex-Catholic, got saved, and my whole family saved. But you're not. You're not a Catholic now. No, I'm not a Catholic now. What? Right, because you came out of that. Right. And all I'm saying is, see, God can overrule all of our flub ups, can He? Right. God can. I'm just saying. What I'm trying to do is, I'm trying to get you to think from a theological perspective. That's all. From the theological perspective, the methodologies that you see happening today. And when you see crusades today, by and large, what is the methodologies and what is the theological thinking behind it? Manipulation, right? That's the thinking. I'm not making it up. You know that. And they did a survey and they found out of all the people that came to know the Lord, they did a you know, survey of thousands of people. And only a very small percentage have ever said, I came to know the Lord through a, through a crusade. The vast number of people came to know the Lord through a friend or a family member that took him to church and shared the gospel with them. By and large, that's how God has designed the Great Commission to work. One-on-one. -on -one. And, and I remember people say, well, I, I, I can't get saved until I go to the Billy Graham crusade. There's a thinking that somehow he could do something that we couldn't. And what ha and how did he get through your sick brain? God God the Holy Spirit one day turned the light on and 
Oh, I get it. Because you're because you're a reprobate sinner. That's why, right? That's why we can no. Look, we all look. We all result. We all we all relate to that. How many times did you hear the gospel before you became a Christian? Yeah, you, know, you you can hear the words and blah 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 blah. You know, it's like the teacher talking on Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. Whatever it says, you can hear that, but it doesn't make any sense, does it? And then all of a sudden, one day, it's just like, you know, the light goes on and it makes sense. And how could I have missed it, you know? Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying here is when I came to the Corinthians, I didn't come with any with any bag of tricks. I didn't come with a manipulative agenda that somehow by by talking smooth or by sharing the gospel a certain way or by some persuasive abilities, I was going to bring them in. I came throwing that all away so that those who did come came because it was the Holy Spirit that drew them, not because of me, not because of my techniques. And that's interesting. You go to the average evangelistic class. The average evangelistic class, what is taught? Technique, isn't it? You ever notice that? How many have been to a class on evangelism in here? What is what what have you learned? Techniques. Techniques. What's a what, what and somehow there's this thinking that if you get the right technique, what will happen? Oh, I'll be able to reach more people for Jesus if I get the right technique down. Is that necessarily true? No, it's not. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings true change and repentance in a person. Not your abilities. Not your fancy speech. And we we need that we we really need to key in on. Now that doesn't mean that we can't learn to share our faith more effectively. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying what we need to realize while we're doing that is to understand it is not my technique and my ability that's going to make the difference whether that person believes or not. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that will make the difference. They just add stuff and take away stuff, and they really probably are not reading the passage their way. That's a problem, isn't it? It's a big problem. It is. Because most of them they add or beat you up with the same thing, so they're they adding stuff to it to like to to, to get you to feel bad. So they're not reading the passage very well. The one that should beat you up is the Holy Spirit, right? Right. It should convict you in itself. And all I'm saying is that is that as Christians, we need to, we need to ponder, meditate on this, and, and understand that that practically in many ways, we deny the power of the Spirit to change people's lives. Somehow we think it's us, or it's a technique, or it's some methodology, and it's not. It is God, the Holy Spirit, that does the conviction. Now, God can use Billy Graham. He can use anybody. Right? Except Benny. Well, Benny's got problems. <laughs> yeah. Except Billy. 
But 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 the whole point is God can use God uses all kinds of different. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism of all things, came over and preached to the Indians. He wasn't even saved. Did you know that? He came and preached the gospel to Indians. He wasn't even a Christian until he got back to England and, and all of a sudden one day on Augs was Augsburg Street or whatever it is, the light went on and he said, you know, I, I'm over there preaching the gospel to people and I don't even believe it myself. He was converted. I mean, it's not us. And God's designed it that way all the way through this, this passage so far. God's designed it that way so no one can say, it's me, it's my abilities, look what I have done, look at all the people that I have led to the Lord. It was my technique or my ability. Look what I did. God doesn't want anybody glorying in his sight because it's all of him. And then in verse 6, Paul says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. <clears throat> what is wisdom? What is biblical wisdom? What is that? When the Bible talks of wisdom, what's it talking about? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. But what is wisdom? Wisdom in the Bible is not intellect. All right, we th when we think of wisdom, what do we think of? Intellect, knowledge. Somebody had a lot of, you know, the guy with the beard on top of the mountain. You know, if he was wise, he wouldn't be on top of the mountain. But anyways, you know, we think of that. That's what we got this picture of. In the Bible, wisdom is not what you know. Wisdom is what you do. It's what you do. And it's what you do in light of your responsibility before God. Read the book of Proverbs. What's wisdom in Proverbs? Wisdom in Proverbs is not intellectual knowledge. Wisdom in Proverbs is knowing how to do the right thing. Knowing what the right thing is and what to do about it. That, that's wisdom. And what is the wisdom of this world? Well, the wisdom of this world is a whole bunch of wrong answers about how to do things, isn't it? Look at the problems facing our society today, and what is our solution? We don't have one. And if we do have an idea, it's wrong, right? Teenage pregnancy. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll put condoms in high schools, and now they're in junior high schools. And then somebody comes up with a bright idea. Well, you know, a girl should be able to go get an abortion and not tell her parents. Now, try to give your kid an aspirin in school, and they'll put you in jail for, right? You ever try to do that? It's illegal. But your daughter can go get an abortion and not tell you. That's all right. That's the wisdom of the world, right? That's what the world comes up with. When the world needs to solve a problem, it comes up with the wrong answer. But what do we have? We have the right answer because we know God. We have the Holy Spirit. We understand what God requires and what he wants. And we can come up with the right answers. And Paul said, we speak wisdom, not the wisdom that is of the world. I can't stand watching these, what, Geraldo and what are these other shows? Let's see, who is it? Geraldo and Dr. Phil and I don't know who else. Are, the talk shows. I'll never stand before the Lord and give an account of wasting one minute watching uh, Jerry Springer. You know, I'll never do that. Because what, what, what's the answers? What's the answers to them? There isn't any. 
And the wack, you know, you ever notice they get the wackiest people on the planet on those shows? <laughs> you know, I got. <laughs> they do. They are wacky. You know, if I had, if I had some of the kinky, if I had some of the kinky habits of some of these people, I would not go on national TV and tell everybody, right? I mean, come on, you know. I mean, you look at this, but. But that's the wisdom of the world. And you get a Christian on those who talk about, you know, godly character and people laugh you off the stage. They think you're nuts. They think you're crazy. It's getting darker. It's getting darker. It's getting darker. I mean, you know, in, in my short period of time, I've, I've seen the change. You know, 40 years ago, you know, if you were engaged, if a couple was engaged, what was assumed about them? Right. Now, if you're engaged, what is the assumption? You've been living together for two years already. That's the assumption, right? The assumption is if you're engaged, you're living together. I mean, I know what it's like at, at Mo and I. Is that that way at your place of work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just assumed, you know, and, and, and if you would actually stand up at an office party and say, you know, I'm engaged to so-and-so, you know, well, how long have you been living together? Well, we don't believe in living together. We think that we should stay, you know, apart until we get married and we've not slept together at all. They look at you like, you know, well, what planet did you get off from? You know, who hit you on the head? You're nuts, crazy. Why? That's the wisdom of the world, isn't it? Wrong answers. What's God say? We speak the wisdom of God and the mystery, the hidden wisdom of God, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God is so bright and so wise and so powerful that he's never made a mistake. And I think I said last week to somebody, you know, it's a bummer being the devil because no matter what you do, God's one step ahead of you, right? What did Satan do? Satan got the crowd all riled up to crucify him, right? To take Christ out and nail him on a cross. He's dead. And Satan thinks, I won. I, I, I won. And God said, thanks. I needed you to do that. Thanks. So I owe you one, Satan. I mean, it's a bummer, right? You think you won. Only to find out that you've lost because God's one step ahead of you. God's wisdom is so far beyond anything we could comprehend. That's what he's going to come and say. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. And from the human perspective, God's ways doesn't make sense. In God's economy, how do you gain it all? You lose it all. Wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. How do you win? You lose. How do you gain eternal life? Well, you give it up. You give up your life. How do you be first? Well, you be last, right? It's different. It's God's, God's thinking and God's economy and God's ways are opposite everything that we think is right. And why is that? So that God makes it very clear that 
there's a difference between his wisdom and our wisdom. And he's saying this wisdom, God ordained, when did God ordain this? Well, before time began. Before anything existed. And not only that, none of the rulers of this age knew. Now, who's he talking about rulers of this age? Who do you think that is? Who's the ruler of this age? Satan. This is, I think this is satanic powers here he's talking about. The satanic powers didn't know this. Or they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. See, one of the things that we need to understand is that, and I'll toss this out because just to clarify the thinking, is that the re- reality that we live in, the reality that God has created, is not a dualistic reality. In other words, there is not an equal and opposite good and evil principle in the universe. Satan is not God's equal. You understand that, I hope. What is Satan? Satan is a created being. He exists inside the boundaries of space and time and the creation that God has made. Who's outside of that? God is. Nothing Satan can do, nothing Satan can pull off, nothing Satan can devise or design will ever affect the eternal plan and purpose of God who's outside the box. Satan cannot win. He cannot win. Mm-hmm. He knows it all. God's not surprised about anything. And God, God's wisdom is so far above anything. And, and I think there's a hint here, the wisdom of God in the mystery, the hidden wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory. I think there's a hint there that you see in um, Ephesians 3 where it talks about the mystery of the church and, that, and the mystery of, and I think the mystery here is salvation. Now, what is a mystery? Something that's hidden that is now revealed. What was hidden prior to the incarnation? Yeah, the plan. The plan was hidden, right? I mean, you had a vague idea that somehow God was going to take care of my sin, but, you know, the particulars of that was all really fuzzy. In fact, they, nobody knew that until after, after Christ rose again. I mean, remember, Christ died on the cross and what were the disciples on the road to Emmaus saying? We thought he was it. I guess we're wrong. They were depressed. They, they didn't know. And when was that designed? Before time began, God had ordained this, and Satan was a pawn. And had Satan known the plan of God, what would he have done? Wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory, because that was part of the plan. That was part of the decree of God. And understand something about the sovereignty of God and the decree of God. You can't thwart that. <laughs> You can't, you can't overturn that. That's fixed. God did not say, man, I'm glad Satan did that or this whole thing would have come undone. God knew exactly what Satan would do. He ordained it. Part of the plan. And had Satan known the plan of God, he would never have crucified the Lord of glory, sealing his own doom. He had never done that. Verse 9, because it's written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither nor have entered in the heart of man 
things which God has prepared for those who love them. This goes back to Revelation. Where do you find out about what God has prepared for you? You crawl outside the box and take a peek? Can't, right? How do you know that? Well, God revealed to him them to us through what? The Spirit. Why do you believe in heaven? Anybody here believe in heaven? Y'all believe in heaven? Anybody been there? Know of anybody that's been there? The answer to that is no. All right. In case you were wondering. There have been books written by people who said they've gone to heaven and come back. No, don't you don't need to read those. There's some that have been written by people who said they've got a tour of hell, and you don't need to read those. But why do you believe in heaven? Why do you believe in heaven? Well, Hindus, I mean, um, Gandhi said a lot of things. Why do you believe him? Where does the faith come from? God. The reason I believe in the in heaven is not because I've made a scientific inquiry and been able to prove its existence or interviewed people that have gone there and come back. It's because the Holy Spirit has given me the understanding that it's there, the, the reassurance that it's there. Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Did you do a scientific study of all religions of the world and pick the right one? Right. I believe because God has granted me through his Holy Spirit the faith to believe it. It's not from me. Which means if I'm a true believer, will my faith ever fail? No. Why? It's not my faith. Now, again, I'm not saying that we don't have to exercise faith, but how can we exercise faith? Because God grants us that faith to start out with. Why do you believe in a place you've never seen? Why do you believe in Jesus? Anybody ever talk to Jesus and have him talk back verbally? No. You ever see Jesus? You ever take a walk with him? No. Why do you believe he exists? The Holy Spirit. God has granted us the faith to believe. And we as Christians, we've placed our entire eternal destiny in something that we could not scientifically prove. Right? Why did we do that? Because we're mentally imbalanced? Because God, well, yeah, you know, there, there are places they put people who believe in things that don't exist, right? Why did you initially believe? Right. Right. But if you did not believe in the first place, all the facts in the world would be meaningless to you. You can make an intellectual argument, but you can explain them away, and they people do. You gotta understand. You got one of the things that you know. One of the problems that that we have as believers is we, if we've been believers for a long time, is we forget what it's like to not be a believer, right? We forget what it was like to be blind. We forget what it was like to not believe, and we need to understand that were it not for the God's Holy Spirit. 
If it was not for the Holy Spirit, I would not be here tonight. Because this is nutsy to believe this stuff. From a purely human intellectual viewpoint, this is crazy stuff to believe. But why do I believe it? Because the Holy Spirit has opened my mind and has given me faith. It, it's not... Yeah. But there are people there. I can walk you down Oberlin College and have you interview every faculty member on campus and 99% of them will think you're a nutball. Think you're crazy. They can explain it all away. Explain it all away. Well, what did they... Now, stop and think. And we got to take our break here. But stop and think about it. Jesus Christ came to earth. What did he do when he was here? When he began his, when he began his public ministry, what did he do? What else did he do? What kind of miracles? Real ones, right? Guy came in blind, he walked away seeing. Guy came in with no leg, he got a leg, right? Not only that, but dead people did what? Came alive. Now, those are real solid believing. I mean, those are bona fide miracles. Healing organic disease. And what was the conclusion of the Pharisees? Of the devil. That was the conclusion. They didn't. Mm -hmm. That shows the hardness of the unbelieving person. How hard we are. In spite of the facts, we won't believe. And God does not do a work. Look at the children of Israel, right? I mean, God decimated, literally decimated the entire economic and political structure of the strongest nation on the planet at that time. He brought them out. They walked them through the middle of a sea on dry land. And when the day got a little bit hot, what was their final conclusion? God brought us out here to kill us. All right. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.